Introduction, Section 8 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 8. Rise of the Mythical Mode of Interpreting the Sacred History in Reference First to the Old Testament. It was impossible to rest satisfied with modes of proceeding so unhistorical on the one hand and so unphilosophical on the other added to which the study of mythology now become far more general and more prolific in its results exerted an increasing influence on the views taken of biblical history eichhorn had indeed insisted that all primitive histories whether hebrew or pagan should be treated alike but this equality gradually disappeared for though the mythical view became more and more developed in relation to profane history the natural mode of explanation was still rigidly adhered to for the hebrew records all could not imitate paulus who sought to establish consistency of treatment by extending the same natural explanation which he gave to the bible to such also of the greek legends as presented any points of resemblance on the contrary opinion in general took the opposite course and began to regard many of the biblical narratives as mythi Zimla had already spoken of a kind of Jewish mythology, and had even called the histories of Samson and Esther mythi. Eichhorn, too, had done much to prepare the way, now further pursued by Gobbler, Schelling, and others, who established the notion of the mythos as one of universal application to ancient history, sacred as well as profane, according to the principle of Heine, a mythis omnis priscorum hominum cum historia tum philosophia procedit and bauer in eighteen twenty ventured so far as to publish a hebrew mythology of the old and new testament the earliest records of all nations are in the opinion of bauer mythical why should the writings of the hebrews form a solitary exception whereas in point of fact a cursory glance at their sacred books proves that they also contain mythical elements a narrative he explains after gobbler and schelling to be recognized as mythos first when it proceeds from an age in which no written records existed but in which facts were transmitted through the medium of oral tradition alone secondly when it presents an historical account of events which are either absolutely or relatively beyond the reach of experience such as occurrences connected with the spiritual world and incidents to which from the nature of the circumstances no one could have been witness or thirdly when it deals in the marvellous and is couched in symbolical language not a few narratives of this description occur in the bible and an unwillingness to regard them as mythi can arise only from a false conception of the nature of a mythos or of the character of the biblical writings in the one case mythi are confounded with fables premeditated fictions and willful falsehoods instead of being recognized as the necessary vehicle of expression for the first efforts of the human mind in the other case it certainly does appear improbable the notion of inspiration presupposed that god should have admitted the substitution of mythical for actual representations of facts and ideas but a nearer examination of the scriptures shows that this very notion of inspiration far from being any hindrance to the mythical interpretation is itself of mythical origin 
Wegscheider ascribed this greater unwillingness to recognize mythi in the early records of the Hebrew and Christian religion than in the heathen religions, partly to the prevailing ignorance respecting the progress of historical and philosophical science, partly to a certain timidity which dares not call things manifestly identical by the same name. At the same time, he declared it impossible to rescue the Bible from the reproaches and scoffs of its enemies, except by the acknowledgment of mythi in the sacred writings, and the separation of their inherent meaning from their unhistorical form. These biblical critics gave the following general definition of the mythos. It is the representation of an event or of an idea in a form which is historical, but, at the same time, characterized by the rich pictorial and imaginative mode of thought and expression of the primitive ages. They also distinguished several kinds of mythi. First, historical mythi, narratives of real events colored by the light of antiquity, which confounded the divine and the human, the natural and the supernatural. Second, philosophical mythi, such as clothe in the garb of historical narrative a simple thought, a precept, or an idea of time. Third, poetical mythi. Historical and philosophical mythi partly blended together and partly embellished by the creations of the imagination, in which the original fact or idea is almost obscured by the veil which the fancy of the poet has woven around it. To classify the biblical mythi according to these several distinctions is a difficult task, since the mythos, which is purely symbolical, wears the semblance of history equally with the mythos which represents an actual occurrence. These critics, however, laid down rules by which the different mythi might be distinguished. The first essential is, they say, to determine whether the narrative has a distinct object, and what that object is. Where no object, for the sake of which the legend might have been invented, is discoverable, every one would pronounce the mythos to be historical. But if all the principal circumstances of the narrative concur to symbolize a particular truth, this undoubtedly was the object of the narrative, and the mythos is philosophical. The blending of the historical and philosophical mythos is particularly to be recognized when we can detect in the narrative an attempt to derive events from their causes. In many instances, the existence of an historical foundation is proved also by independent testimony. Sometimes certain particulars in the mythos are intimately connected with known genuine history, or bear in themselves undeniable and inherent characteristics of probability, so that the critic, while he rejects the external form, may yet retain the groundwork as historical. The poetical mythos is the most difficult to distinguish, and Bauer gives only a negative criterion. When the narrative is so wonderful, on the one hand, as to exclude the possibility of its being a detail of facts, and when, on the other, it discovers no attempt to symbolize a particular thought, it may be suspected that the entire narrative owes its birth to the imagination of the poet. Schelling particularly remarks on the unartificial and spontaneous origin of mythi in general. The unhistorical which is interwoven with the matters of fact in the historical mythos is not, he observes, 
the artistical product of design and invention. It has, on the contrary, glided in of itself, as it were, in the lapse of time and in the course of transmission. And speaking of philosophical mythi, he says, the sages of antiquity clothed their ideas in an historical garb, not only in order to accommodate those ideas to the apprehension of a people who must be awakened by sensible impressions, but also on their own account, deficient themselves in clear abstract ideas and inability to give expression to their dim conceptions, they sought to illumine what was obscure in their representations by means of sensible imagery. We have already remarked that the natural mode of interpreting the Old Testament could be maintained only so long as the records were held to be contemporaneous, or nearly so, with the events recorded. Consequently, it was precisely those theologians, Vater, De Vetta, and others who controverted this opinion, who contributed to establish the mythical view of the sacred histories. Vater expressed the opinion that the peculiar character of the narrations in the Pentateuch could not be rightly understood unless it were conceded that they are not the production of an eyewitness, but are a series of transmitted traditions. Their traditional origin being admitted, we cease to feel surprised at the traces which they discover of a subsequent age, at numerical exaggerations, together with other inaccuracies and contradictions, at the twilight which hangs over many of the occurrences, and at representations such as that the clothes of the Israelites waxed not old during their passage through the wilderness. Fater even contends that unless we ascribe a great share of the marvelous contained in the Pentateuch to tradition, we do violence to the original sense of the compilers of these narratives. The natural mode of explanation was still more decidedly opposed by De Vetta than by Fater. He advocated the mythical interpretation of a large proportion of the Old Testament histories. In order to test the historical credibility of a narrative, he says we must ascertain the intention of the narrator. If that intention be not to satisfy the natural thirst for historical truth by a simple narration of facts, but rather to delight or touch the feelings, or to illustrate some philosophical or religious truth, then his narrative has no pretension to historical validity. Even when the narrator is conscious of strictly historical intentions, nevertheless his point of view may not be the historical. He may be a poetical narrator, not indeed subjectively, as a poet drawing inspiration from himself, but objectively, as enveloped by and depending on poetry external to himself. This is evidently the case when the narrator details as bona fide matter of fact things which are impossible and incredible, which are contrary not only to experience, but to the established laws of nature. Narrations of this description spring out of tradition. Tradition, says De Vetta, is uncritical and partial. Its tendency is not historical, but rather patriotic and poetical. And since the patriotic sentiment is gratified by all that flatters national pride, the more splendid, the more honorable, the more wonderful the narrative, the more acceptable it is. And where tradition has left many blanks, 
imagination at once steps in and fills them up. And since, he continues, a great part of the historical books of the Old Testament bear this stamp, it has hitherto been believed possible, on the part of the natural interpreters, to separate the embellishments and transformations from the historical substance, and still to consider them available as records of facts. This might indeed be done, had we, besides the marvellous biblical narratives, some other purely historical account of the events. But this is not the case with regard to the Old Testament history. We are solely dependent on those accounts which we cannot recognize as purely historical. They contain no criterion by which to distinguish between the true and the false. Both are promiscuously blended, and set forth as of equal dignity. According to De Vetta, the whole natural mode of explanation is set aside by the principle that the only means of acquaintance with a history is the narrative which we possess concerning it, and that beyond this narrative the historian cannot go. In the present case, this reports to us only a supernatural course of events, which we must either receive or reject. If we reject it, we determine to know nothing at all about it, and are not justified in allowing ourselves to invent a natural course of events, of which the narrative is totally silent. It is, moreover, inconsistent and arbitrary to refer the dress in which the events of the Old Testament are clothed to poetry, and to preserve the events themselves as historical. Much rather do the particular details and the dress in which they appear constitute a whole belonging to the province of poetry and mythos. For example, if God's covenant with Abraham be denied in the form of fact, whilst at the same time it is maintained that the narrative had an historical basis, that is to say, that though no objective divine communication took place, the occurrence had a subjective reality in Abraham's mind in a dream or in a waking vision. In other words, that a natural thought was awakened in Abraham, which he, in the spirit of the age, referred to God. Of the naturalist who thus reasons, Deveta asks, how he knows that such thoughts arose in Abraham's mind. The narration refers them to God, and if we reject the narration, we know nothing about these thoughts of Abraham, and consequently cannot know that they had arisen naturally in him. According to general experience, such hopes as are described in this covenant, that he should become the father of a mighty nation which should possess the land of Canaan, could not have sprung up naturally in Abraham's mind. But it is quite natural that the Israelites, when they had become a numerous people in possession of that land, should have invented the covenant in order to render their ancestor illustrious. Thus, the natural explanation by its own unnaturalness, ever brings us back to the mythical. Even Eichhorn, who so extensively employed the natural explanation in reference to the Old Testament, perceived its inadmissibility in relation to the gospel histories. Whatever in these narratives has a tendency to the supernatural, he remarks, we ought not to attempt to transform into a natural occurrence, because this is impossible without violence. If once an event has acquired a miraculous coloring, owing to the blending together of some popular notion with the occurrence, 
the natural fact can be disentangled only when we possess a second account which has not undergone the like transformation as concerning the death of herod agrippa we have not only the narrative in the acts but also that of josephus but since we have no such controlling account concerning the history of jesus the critic who pretends to discover the natural course of things from descriptions of supernatural occurrences will only weave a tissue of indemonstrable hypotheses a consideration which as eichhorn observes at once annihilates many of the so-called psychological interpretations of the gospel histories it is the same difference between the natural and mythical modes of interpretation which krug intends to point out referring particularly to the histories of miracles when he distinguishes the physical or material from the genetic or formal mode of explaining them following the former mode according to him the inquiry is how can the wonderful event here related have possibly taken place with all its details by natural means and according to natural laws whereas following the latter the question is whence arose the narrative of the marvellous event the former explains the natural possibility of the thing related the substance of the narrative the latter traces the origin of the existing record the form of the narrative krug considers attempts of the former kind to be fruitless because they produce interpretations yet more wonderful than the fact itself far preferable is the other mode since it leads to results which throw light upon miraculous histories collectively he gives the preference to the exegetist because in his explanation of the text he is not obliged to do violence to it but may accept it altogether literally as the author intended even though the thing related be impossible whereas the interpreter who follows the material or physical explanation is driven to ingenious subtleties which make him lose sight of the original meaning of the authors and substitute something quite different which they neither could nor would have said in like manner gobbler recommended the mythical view as the best means of escaping from the so-called natural but forced explanation which had become the fashion the natural interpreter he remarks commonly aims to make the whole narrative natural and as this can but seldom succeed he allows himself the most violent measures owing to which modern exegesis has been brought into disrepute even among laymen the mythical view on the contrary needs no such subtleties since the greater part of the narrative frequently belongs to the mythical representation merely while the nucleus of fact when divested of the subsequently added miraculous envelopments is often very small neither could horst reconcile himself to the atomistic mode of proceeding which selected from the marvellous narratives of the bible as unhistorical isolated incidents merely and inserted natural ones in their place instead of recognizing in the whole of each narrative a religious moral mythos in which a certain idea is embodied an anonymous writer in berthold's journal has expressed himself very decidedly against the natural mode of explaining the sacred history and in favor of the mythical the essential defect of the natural interpretation as exhibited in its fullest development by Pallas's commentary is according to that writer 
its unhistorical mode of procedure. He objects that it allows conjecture to supply the deficiencies of the record, adopts individual speculations as a substitute for real history, seeks by vain endeavors to represent that as natural which the narrative describes as supernatural, and lastly evaporates all sacredness and divinity from the scriptures, reducing them to collections of amusing tales no longer meriting the name of history. According to our author, this insufficiency of the natural mode of interpretation, whilst the supernatural also is felt to be unsatisfactory, leads the mind to the mythical view, which leaves the substance of the narrative unassailed, and instead of venturing to explain the details, accepts the whole, not indeed as true history, but as sacred legend. This view is supported by the analogy of all antiquity, political and religious, since the closest resemblance exists between many of the narratives of the Old and New Testament and the mythi of profane antiquity. But the most convincing argument is this. If the mythical view be once admitted, the innumerable and never otherwise to be harmonized discrepancies and chronological contradictions in the gospel histories disappear, as it were, at one stroke. End of section 8